0: We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagra people, and their elders past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded, and flood media is recorded on stolen land.
1: Revenues, re- re- revenues on
0: so, going to begin uh, today's cast uncharacteristically professional by talking about who's in the room before we even begin, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we won't uh, <laughs> save it for 20 minutes in like normal. <laughs> um so yeah starting off i'm back on the cast this fortnight i guess we're sort of moving to vaguely fortnightly uh podcasts um so i'm joe callum amy matt and maddie cool thank you so matt uh this is your first time um in the studio with us (laughs) and uh i think we, we one of the reasons we wanted to have you on Um, first because you have written an honest thesis on on Batman, is that right? That is true. Okay. (laughs) And, you know, as you know, we're a leftist podcast, I think it's the law that we have to talk about Joker, so we'll be talking about that later on. But uh, you also have written a piece for Overland recently about a a, a kind of local issue that's been getting some national prominence, which is the Ramsey Centre at the University of Queensland. Um, And the piece is called Ramsey, Marks and the Ghosts of the Western Canon. So I wanted to start off um, just by like, chatting to you a bit about this very interesting piece. Um, and for our listeners who don't know, like, can you maybe tell them what is the Ramsey Centre and why has there been so much controversy yeah, so over the it? The
1: Ramsey Centre is, I've kind of been obsessed with this because I, uh, I have a background in uh, Shakespeare studies as well. Mm. I, was, I was for a, quite a while trying to do a PhD on Shakespeare at the University of Sydney, which is one of the most kind of Western civilizationy y topics. Um, and that's... So what the Ramsey Centre is, is essentially this weird kind of right-wing vanity project where there was this guy, Paul Ramsey, a billionaire, I think. He um, ran a bunch of, like, private healthcare companies. Um, and Tony Abbott essentially got to him before he died and convinced him to give $3 billion to this thing called the Ramsey Centre, which is an institute... That wants to cut a deal. It's been trying for a while now to cut deals with various Australian universities to run an undergraduate degree in Western civilization. Where, and it's on this kind of uh, Oxford model where you go in and it's quite a small class and there's quite a small, um, it's like individual tutors managing quite small classes of students, having quite a lot of, like, one-on-one time, and you go through all the great classics of Western civilization, uh, such as Aristotle and Shakespeare and Aristotle. <laughs> and, yeah, that's... And the rationale behind it is that, uh, you know, it's meant as a counter to all these uh, social justice warrior professors who hate Shakespeare and won't teach the humanities before because they think it's anti-Western. Um, and, you know, nobody teaches Shakespeare anymore in universities and it's all run by crazy lefties who think that the only thing you know you can't read any of these old white men because it's you know it's not Marxist enough or something like that um and yeah they've so they got knocked back first from ANU in Canberra. ANU knocked them back not for any political reason but because the Ramsey Centre people were insisting on having too much control over the curriculum to the point where They wanted to have people actually in the classroom monitoring what was being taught so that if it wasn't uh, politically correct, one might say, they would actually be able to, you know, censor that professor's free speech. Yeah,
0: um, <laughs> That reminds me of a story my dad told about when he was teaching in the 1980s and said that he used the term political economy and <laughs> a student reported him to the dean because they were like, that guy's a <laughs> Marxist. <Yeah. laughs> Turned
1: out yeah. to be right, actually. And, but yeah, <laughs> <as> he should. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's... And, and the university, I knew, was very clear in their statement about this. Uh, like, painfully clear, in fact. Like, it, it's not because we wouldn't teach this stuff. It's because that level of control over the content of a class, like a class by an outside entity is just like, they can't get away with that basically. Otherwise, like they would have loved to have the money. It's $3 billion.
0: Yeah, right, right.
1: So they tried to do that. They got knocked back and they complained about social justice professors. And then they went to UCID and they got knocked back from UCID. And then they cut a deal with the University of Wollongong. And now they've cut a deal with the University of Queensland. And they're going to be starting, uh, I don't know, maybe like next couple of years sometime, they will be starting to teach this degree in Western Civilization at the University of Queensland.
0: And why is that, why has there been like so much kind of backlash against this idea?
1: Well, because it's just a very obvious, you know, it's very obvious what these people want to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and like, you know, there's... Like, a lot of people are just like, oh, yeah, this is, like, Tony Abbott. John Howard's on the board of this. Mm -hmm. Um, Kim Beasley, as well, was on the board for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just, yeah, like, um, certainly the academics at all of these schools have been very, like, first, it is a very obvious violation of academic integrity, because no one seriously believes this is an apolitical project. Yeah, right. And certainly that includes the Shakespeare teachers and the classics teachers and the people who already teach these materials at these schools, like, well, no, like, it's not, you can't actually tell us what to teach. That is an important principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and also you are, uh, the people who run the course are very just like, no, like, we just want to teach this material. And they're, you know, they, just, and like, it, it is correct that it's not intrinsically racist to teach Shakespeare. Nobody thinks that. But also everyone kind of understands that what they're going to do is they're just going to give them, like, they're not going to be teaching any uh, anti-colonial perspectives. Yeah, it's just right. going to be more like a refusal to teach non-Western voices or like even women's voices yeah, or all it. these, just anything that's outside the Western tradition, it's, which is also really important to teach just really obvious balance reasons because they like yeah like it and it is just the the fear is that it's just a kind of smokescreen for just the insistence that western civilization is not only is intrinsically superior to all these other um yeah yeah, and also like civilization is not really an academically sound concept <laughs> in any way. Come on,
2: this is interesting because univer- that's already what our universities look like. We already have yeah, exactly. all these whitewashed universities that are focusing more or less on Western voices. Um, you know, with with these tiny little exceptions, um, we've just seen here in Brisbane one of our um, dear comrades, Andrew, has gone through. A terrible struggle at um, Griffith University, I believe, where yeah. um, in an Indigenous studies course, the lecturer was saying that um, the German missions were sort of humanitarian in a way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 and he was successful in taking them to task, yeah. um, which is like a kind of a rare bit of resistance that we've seen.
1: And Andrew has written um, quite a bit about the Ramsey Centre as well, which is something one of the things I think is I didn't talk enough about the Indigenous um, issues around the course as well in my piece. And I kind of, yeah, Andrew, like, written a piece for Indigenous X about mm. this, which is also very good.
0: Yeah, we can link to that as well in the show description. Um, so, yeah, you, there have been quite a few pieces written um about this kind of in the broader media as well. So what what made you want to write your piece, which is, I think, a little bit different from most of the takes out there. So like, what did you think was missing from the mainstream conversation? What were you trying to do?
1: So one of the things that I find really interesting about this conversation is that there's these sort of like hard right ideologues providing the funding. And then these people who are like professional academics who actually it's their job to kind of run the thing from day to day and to justify it. And a lot of these people kind of understand that it's I th- like I think what they're going to end up doing in the Ramsey Center a lot of the time is just teaching the exact same thing that they all re- like they've always taught mm. because it is what they've always taught. You're going to get Shakespeare people in, and they're going to be teaching their like normal Shakespeare courses. Um, so that's like the f- like the first thing point I wanted to make was that ultimately what they're trying to do is going to be in no way different from a normal university curriculum. Mm. Um, And I don't want existing universities to kind of get away with representing themselves as being really cool and progressive. Yeah, I think you're trying to make... You're not
0: trying to say that, like, you know, it's fine, actually. You're just... You're trying to say the opposite, which is that the the curriculum as usual is just as bad. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And and this motif of the ghost, like, you use that quite a lot in your piece... um, which the title, as I mentioned before, is Ramsey Marx and the Ghosts of the Western Canon. Mm. So interested in like your understanding of this idea of the ghosts as it relates to academia and the Ramsey Centre and even Western civilization as a whole, and also Mm. how you relate that to to Marx's work
1: as well. Yeah, like what really... I only really started trying to read Marx and get my head around it like fairly recently. Mm. Um, I read David Harvey's Companion to Capital, which is kind of on the shelf over there. One of the (laughs) things that... Literally, (laughs) yeah, yeah, like literally. Yeah, like one of the things that struck me about it, kind of the first thing, is this term crystallization. I think, or maybe the idea of congealed labor—that an object is the sum total of all the labor that goes into creating Mm. it—which struck me as a really um, like interesting kind of. Almost under theorized idea. I was immediate like, "What does that mean?" Like Marx
0: loved crystals. He was yeah, one yeah, of the he original crystal people. <laughs>
1: um, and so it's, uh, it's like, okay, there's a like it, it struck me that time was really important to Marxism and this idea mm. of like, especially the idea of capital as dead labor, which is something he talks about a lot. He's thinking of labor as this kind of living process that is kind of ongoing and kind of gives your life meaning, and then capital is the products of labor kind of congealed labor, which kind of frozen and no longer capable of doing anything. Mm. Um, And I think that stuff is kind of... the, The concept of, like, ghosts, I think, that's where that kind of becomes a useful way of understanding that it's something that's, like, definitely, like, it's real and it's kind of has this very, like, tangible effect but it's kind of hard to grasp onto and to kind of talk about in a way that doesn't make you sound a little crazy, I think. Mm, mm. And that's why I think Bucks keeps sort of lapsing into this gothic language of ghosts and vampires, which he also – he does it all the time, and I think he also just likes to do it for rhetorical purposes. Yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. And, and how did you, then? How did you like, see that as relating to, to yeah, this question of, of the Ramsey Centre? Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, what it is – like, I just started thinking because the Ramsey Centre is funded with Paul Ramsey's money. He's obviously dead. A ghost. Um, yeah, he's obviously – But it's a way of just all these old dead white men – basically um controlling what we do like they you know they have all this capital which is dead labour mm. and I mean Ramsey you know he some
3: extra healthcare. layer of dead here too yeah. having spent a long time in a Ramsey hospital recently of a ton of dying old people it's <laughs> just like ghosts all the way down <laughs> and you
1: know healthcare should be free actually um yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah like it's, it's all that money um and he, like he's obviously he doesn't care what happens because he's not alive anymore mm. Um, but it's a way of concentrating all this wealth and preserving the um, preserving the power of people who actually don't matter anymore.
0: Totally, yeah. No, I think uh, that was a re- really original way to think about it, which is one of the reasons I enjoyed the article. Um, Callan, I think you had a question too about about gothic Marxism.
4: Yeah, well, I was sort of wanting to tie it in with the other article you wrote for um, Flood Media because you're you know talking about. Peterson and that whole right-wing mysticism, because that ties in with the whole concept of Western civilization hugely. Um, And I think we were having a chat about it off air, and I think you and I are not really sort of across Gothic Marxism yet. It's definitely an area I want to get into more. But yeah, I just wanted to see, you know, in terms of, you know, that mysticism, it seems to be really engaging for a lot of politically naive or, I don't know, innocent or not engaged people who then you know get caught up in the emotive imagery of that right-wing mysticism. And I was sort of wanting to you know throw it to you in terms of, do you think Gothic Marxism could play that role for the left in engaging people with that emotive it's, imagery? Yeah,
1: because what's kind of different there is that what's kind of different about that article I wrote about D.H. Lawrence and Jordan Peterson and Lovecraft is that it's very much, and uh, Jung and those guys, is very much not a materialist, approach to it's not a materialist philosophy it's like everything kind of important there just like happens in some spiritual plane essentially and what's kind of interesting about the gothic marxism is that it's it's obviously talking about ghosts but it's still very much like these are real things that exist and it's grounded in material and economic and like physical relationships and so i think that the gothic analogy sort of It lets us kind of bridge that gap in possibly an interesting way, because the Marxist analysis of history often seems quite, it's quite hard to, it kind of seems abstract in a sense, especially once you've just started reading about it, it's a bit like, oh, capital has this mysterious force that orchestrates everything. And you're a bit like, well, is that real? What does that mean? It's hard to to visualise. It can
0: only be translated into yards of linen.
5: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But once you start kind of... What if
0: the
3: linen was black?
1: (laughs) Once you start kind of getting your head around it, it's more like, okay, this like clearly is in some sense... I think David Harvey says something like, it's material, but it's not tangible, or it's tangible, but it's not material. He has some sort of turn of phrase that I thought was really good at the time, which was just like kind of expressing very neatly this strange quality that a lot of Marxist thought I think has... Mm. Um, yeah but I'm sure there's a lot more I could read about it that I haven't read I
3: think it's kind of an interesting angle though because you know if you think about traditional gothic um, it's this real like fascination for and lust for the monster Mm. and often it's like girl versus house or girl versus monster in male form and the reader as the usually female protagonist is sort of wanting to be like subsumed and consumed mm. by the monster. So yeah, there's a, there's I don't a, know what it says that poisonous. we're sort of positioning this as this like lust to be <laughs> eaten and like <laughs> annihilated by well, capital. Yeah. I mean I guess that's but sexy capital. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's
1: yeah, you know, capital's very attractive to a lot of people, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I yes. have a I have a couple of quotes that I was thought yeah. might be interesting
4: because, and one of them sort of ties in with what you were saying, Matt, about dead labour. Um, and this is um from a blog called The Lit Crit Guy. He's a Um, He does a podcast, I think, as well, um, called The Horror Vanguard, I believe. Um, But yeah, so the first one, the first quote of his uh, in this piece he had, uh, I'll just read it out. Um, As Mark Fisher pointed, an accurate understanding of capitalism will inevitably lead us to monsters. The most gothic description of capital... Is also the most accurate. Capital is an abstract parasite, an insatiable vampire, and zombie maker. But the living labour it converts into dead labour is ours, and the zombies it makes are us. And then, so the second quote I thought was really good. Um, is this, uh, quote, We are deep within the monster factory. For this, we need a gothic Marxism, analysis that would expose the occult economies of capitalism that keep hidden the ways in which capitalism operates and normalises itself, as well as understand this cultural proliferation of monsters for what they are, not just a warning of what we think may happen, but a record of what is, in so many ways, already happening.
2: I think this is um, a great description of the the neoliberal university as well, right like you send (laughs) in these like you send in these really really idealistic 17 year olds and out the other side you get these like they get consumed by the sandstone
0: building
3: and come out as shells and of course i
0: mean i I don't know if everyone's here has read mark fisher's exiting the vampire castle which is like he uses that imagery quite a lot to make a, a point about um,
3: basically identity politics and if you haven't read that I really recommend giving it a read <laughs> but before we move on the other thing I found kind of interesting here and maybe you have a view Matt is this relationship between the Ramsey Centre and Ramsey as philanthropist so I was looking up um, Ramsey actually gave most of his money to the Ramsey Foundation whose brief allegedly is uh, identifying the root causes of disadvantage and implementing strategic solutions to empower our community <laughs> That's doing with a lot of health work. <laughs> and education as focus areas. So I think this whole thing is a case in point where, of, you know, philanthropy as good, and then once you actu- once the rubber hits the road, what you have is like eight people being educated in fucking dead scholars. Like <laughs> the yeah. it's a beautiful like case study of the absolute.
1: The Yeah, limits of philanthropy and the way it's like...
3: Mm, no, not only
2: limits, yeah. but
1: yeah, just it's... The a, actual goal of philanthropy. Yeah. yeah.
2: But also this incredible idea that you need like these billions of dollars to create what could be a functional education system. Like most students in the rest of the university will be facing larger classes, less tuition time, but these students are going to get this like really specialised system and then uh, at the same time as Ramsey's dumping a bunch of money into private health which is basically creating a two-tiered health system at the same time um yeah just that you need private money to actually um yeah create what could be functional systems yeah
3: not only is the private money not useful but it's actually actively harmful yeah like his education is teach for australia which is a thing which sort of um in Australia, has copped a lot of heat for really under training teachers and dumping them in, and this, in the US has been yeah, really strongly linked with the charter school movement. So, yeah, because yeah. that's an yeah an import importation
0: from the US kind of fucked education model.
3: Mm, but yeah, I found this sort of Ramsey Centre outcry kind of interesting because it's actually caused a bit of a beef with some of the kind of softer lib business types who are involved in the Ramsey Foundation who are going, you know, this is what we've always been doing, consolidating power but you're making us look bad, like it's too <laughs> much in the open. Don't say the quiet part loud. <laughs> yeah, mm. this is a very 2019 well, form of philanthropy, yeah. I think.
1: That's very much what the universities are doing, is going like, oh no, we want the money but don't make us look like racist. Like yeah. We want to be able to Because, like, I think universities now and days increasingly definitely invested in looking like they're, um, you know, diverse and, like, have this, like, range of voices. Certainly if you're in an English department, people will, like, talk about that and people will... Holy
3: shit, I got the best email the other day from QUT introducing their new vice-chancellor. It's a real um, more female prison guards vibe. (laughs) It's a, um, I think, a Chinese woman who is like an innovator and an entrepreneur and an academic except all her research has been for fossil fuel companies <laughs> <laughs> <That> <laughs> introducing this has caused me physical pain I know <laughs> you really to do trigger warnings before you say <laughs> university like of that. the real world just like
0: extracting <laughs> <laughs> oh man there's so much there isn't there <laughs> um cool well I'm, I think we've got a lot to talk about today tonight so thanks uh, Matt for giving that Excellent overview. And the piece um, we will link to in the show description is in um, in Overland. Um, and Matt has also written a couple of pieces for us on our, um, our website vertical, I suppose, uh, where we occasionally have written pieces. So we'll link to those as well. But um, if you want to stick around we'd love to hear yeah. your thoughts no, on the Joker will.
1: I have a lot of thoughts on the Joker
0: actually <laughs> okay. so you're not allowed to go as a Batman PhD holder that's right <laughs> um, so I'm going to set a time limit for this discussion because <laughs> every single fucking leftist podcast in the world has done a Joker take so like I said I think we're legally obliged to But
4: I literally put this in the show notes as obligatory leftist <laughs> <of> Joker take <Day. laughs>
0: but I'm going to try and make it not too long and not too repetitive so let's say 15 minutes and then we'll call it time Um, Matt, what did you think? Did you enjoy it?
1: So I broadly liked it and then immediately forgot everything that happened. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Are we allowed to spoil it?
0: Um, yeah, well, okay, there's spoilers. Don't stop listening if you haven't seen it. Yeah.
1: Um, so I saw it with my mum and Mm -hmm. my mum, I asked my mum what I thought and she's not online and she didn't know anything about it. And she was, she was immediately like, yeah, that was a very right wing movie. Oh, really? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, why didn't you say, well, yeah, like set up the rich guy as the bad guy. Yeah. I made it clear being rich is bad. But then the uprising against the rich people, like the only like way they could conceive of like popular resistance is just by like smashing everything and fighting each other and just Mm. like setting the entire city Mm. on fire. And she was like, yeah, I just think people are better than that. Mm. Like I just think, you know, just because people are angry at the rich, they doesn't mean they would just immediately endorse murder. Mm. Um, It's representing a thing where it's the same politics as the Dark Knight Rises, um, and all of these kind of other Batman movies where it's like, yeah, like, rich are bad, like, you know, Batman's bad, really, but, like, they can't actually conceive of any alternative mm. or any form of popular resistance that wouldn't be just chaos and anarchy mm. and, the, the, you know, the goddamn Joker. That's true. And I think my mum is basically right.
0: Well, that's, to me, that was what was the most interesting part about it was the fact that they didn't go down that trope of um, Joker. I mean, I guess it's kind of impossible within the the contours of the plot of the batman universe but they didn't go down the the route of joker finding some kind of um uh i don't know um meaning in in this resistance movement or that it, it becoming a liberatory tool for him or anything like that he um if anything seemed like it was barely aware of it and my favorite scene in the movie is um the bit where he's waiting to go on the late night talk show and the producer comes in to see him and says like what's this clown face paint you've got and is that some kind of political statement and he says oh no no I don't believe in that I don't believe in anything so to me like that is just making it really clear that it's a movie about alienation in a way it is it doesn't have that much hope in it um yeah interested to hear others thoughts
3: well it doesn't have hope from like the joker's perspective but yeah, yeah that's you can true. have hope for the that's citizens true. after they wake up like does their rebellion get anywhere
0: yeah. And I, I mean, I, I don't, I I think the politics of it in terms of setting up not only rich people, but also cops as bad was very courageous. Like mm. you don't actually often see that in Hollywood. So I did appreciate that.
4: Um, I think one of the good things about, well, one of the great things about that whole movie experience was how we managed to get 11 people coordinated into the <laughs> middle of the this massive theatre, uh, yeah. fully <laughs> packed out theatre Right next to each other it was. I thought that was a really good. Uh, <laughs> we did a group to see uh, it. <laughs> The
0: only time I think we've ever been on t- all on time for the, like the start of a movie <laughs> had seats together. <laughs> Look, we had
4: a like a non-talking row and a an, <laughs> yeah. uh, talking row. So and I can
0: think... I recommend that everyone do this in future when you go to see movies <laughs> with your friends? Because otherwise, I probably would have killed someone in the
3: in the talking
4: <laughs> row. <laughs>
0: Gone full Joker on you.
4: <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it was. Um, I was definitely less like mind blown by the movies and like i guess cr- sort of crit- critical analysis maybe because i just already have that understanding of mm. like um societal structures maybe for people who don't have that they might have been like oh that's definitely You're something new to fully
3: think. aware we do live in a society <laughs> yeah exactly
4: um but i think for me yeah it wasn't it was just definitely like a good movie i enjoyed it but i think in terms of, like, is it my favourite representation of the Joker? I don't think it was. My favourites, like, I think are going to be the Mark Hamill um, version in the Arkham games. Um, wow, deep cut. Yeah, deep cut. Um, but purely just because it's the my like, absolute fantasy of that and the richness of the, like, I can't really describe it more than, like, unbelievable. It's so unbelievable, like obviously not set in our world, but just so rich in that car, uh, car comic book sort of style is why I love that. But also, I guess, in a similarity as to why Heath Ledger's my second one, it's like there's no real origin story to these jokers. They are just sort of there as a force. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think in my view it's like they're less of a symptom. Well, they're like a symptom of, you know, society or capitalism's um, effects, but um, no, I,
0: I know what you mean. Like it's not about individuals. Yeah, the Joker is an individual, right? Which yeah. I think, yeah, that's like. I And I heard Slavoj Žižek um, say the same thing. And and yeah, I think I get what he means now. And I, I do see, yeah, how the the idea of doing an individual origin story, especially one where you feel. So sorry for the guy. Like so, it's it's an incredibly touching personal story. Doesn't quite jibe with the idea of Joker as a kind of chaotic figure or a symbol of something. And the other thing Shyshak said was that um oh, but there's lots of you know the the, the story um doesn't make like so much sense because there's lots of people who go through what he went through and don't become mass murderers. But to me that kind of, I don't know if I agree with that analysis, it kind of misunderstands the point, which is that he has to become that to like it isn't a story really about an individual. It's a he's like a a, a comic book guy in, in the basis sense of the word. It's a he's a, he is a symbol.
3: I guess I enjoyed him as a um You know, a lot of things in the there, like, you know, the garbage strike or Mm. him as talking about medical defunding or whatever, where you make the class and the city a real character, whereas Mm. often in those superhero things, it is a footnote. It's like this Batman theme of, you know, these like evil underclasses who are restive and they're just sort of like, they're a couple, particularly in like a comic or a graphic novel, they're actually like an a figure without a face like kind of off in the corner there and it's like Batman's like the most boring man in the world's origin story that gets the thing so (laughs) though, (laughs) yeah like shading in that society for me was enjoyable. I
1: was just gonna yeah just talk briefly um yeah the comic it's riffing off uh Alan Moore's comic The Killing Joke which is a Joker origin story Mm. but very specifically not the only Joker origin story and tries to make the point that the, he says uh, the Joker's past is multiple choice. Like, there's always going to be a wide range of different possible things that he could have come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other cut here is just, yeah, Grant Morrison's Joker in the Batman comics I wrote my honours thesis on is, he has this concept of the Joker is just constantly, like radically reinventing himself to mm. keep up with, like, s- society, the society mm. that we live in. So we well, do live is, in a society. <laughs> yeah, so there's just, like... I think he's, he's like, the Joker has a new kind of super sanity for the 21st century, which is, like, he has just a totally different personality every five seconds. And I think it's... And Morrison's Batman was really exploring the nature of time as well and the idea that the past in comics is very versatile and admits of multiple explanations.
3: I think one thing I, like, forced and foremost, I really enjoyed seeing a bit of mass culture that wasn't absolute dog shit. Yeah. No. That was actually, like, written and directed and acted with some... That's so true. Some level And wasn't of skill. a
0: remake. Like, I mean, a prequel is uh, pretty marginal, but at least it wasn't Ghost Lady
3: Ghostbusters 3 or whatever. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, while it was, like, a really... Um, Obviously, done look at a lot of its themes. Like, it's you know, I think as we discussed in Link Roundup the other week, that's interesting how much of the kind of like centrist media, these kind of themes of like capitalist mm. overwork and whatever are coming into, I think that you have such, like, a main cultural product actually going, yeah, maybe we can eat the rich. Actually, I think that it's was one of the
4: best things about this movie was the media reaction to it and oh, just yeah, how they, like...
5: beautiful.
3: Oh, that was so the main good. pleasure <laughs> of the Joker. I got home and, like, searched up a million things. Yeah, do you have any of those terrible oh, takes
0: yeah. <laughs> handy for us? Because I would love to hear.
3: Yeah, I think it was really interesting, like, the hysteria before and watching the way they really told on themselves. Like, I read a few Guardian articles And they're all absolute nightmares. Yeah. Um, So you know, the Joker, the most disappointing movie of the year. Um, Solemn but shallow. A strong performance by Joaquin Phoenix, but weighed down by realist detail and tedious material. Or all these ones where they um, talk about like what a loser the Joker is in his pre-Joker period. (laughs) Um, Joaquin Phoenix doesn't have
4: healthcare.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Plays Arthur (laughs) Fleck, a pathetic loser and loner. The the thing. And can you imagine? A former inpatient in a psychiatric facility, uh, blah, 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 lives with her his elderly mother in her scuzzy apartment. Poor yeah, Arthur. Just disgusting. <laughs> <Just> like revolting <laughs> scums. How dare a man live with his mother and take care Continues of her. Continues through tedious, forced material. Um, yeah, it's... Just this absolute contempt for...
1: (laughs) The figure of the Joker himself. Yeah, for anyone uh,
3: who might be, you know, living uh, without
0: healthcare, living with their mum, living uh, in a shit apartment, underemployed. The one that I loved best said something about how the Joker is a figure of white male entitlement and self-pity, and it's like... He was literally chained to a radiator and beaten as a child. Is he not allowed to feel a little sorry for himself and like is it entitled now also, to want medication for your mental health disorders? Like it's
1: clearly not like ideal like he's clearly looks silly. Like Okem is clearly playing him as like a comic figure still. It's not yeah, like idealizing the again. most horrendous yeah, yeah, things yeah. I've
3: ever seen. <laughs> I liked this woman says he's um earning minimum wage is a pathetic party clown. <laughs> Firstly, a emi- uh, pathetic earning minimum wage. Secondly, what makes you think there is like a minimum wage in any part of this universe? Yeah, yeah. Like they're imagining he just needs to like knuckle up and, you know, make the most. Particularly putting in his own income tax like- credits to get his Medicare. Is there an award for
2: clowns? <laughs> <laughs> like and he just is on the lowest tier.
4: What's your take, Amy, on the movie?
2: Oh, look, I haven't seen it. Um I'll just preface it with that and mainly because I didn't want to have to have an opinion on it. <laughs> like everyone had talked about it so much, and everyone was like, You got to go see it, it's really good. Um, but I think you've already touched on some of the things I'd been thinking, like this trope of like the person looking after their elderly parents and descending into madness. Like, we've seen this a lot, and um, Joker like, as Cat Lady, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I just I felt like, Oh, that's a little cruel, like, mm. I think a lot of people in these different desperate situations are usually driven towards like solidarity and resilience um, to survive and then to be like oh he's driven into madness but i haven't seen the film so <laughs> this is just me from no, like it, watching, give your opinion anyway. <laughs> yeah, watching the um, uh, you know watching the trailers
3: and reading the the wikipedia um, the wikipedia entry mm. is as far as i've gotten the other thing i did find quite disturbing about my joker takes um, tour i went on afterwards was that how many people who love the joker online are however nightmare people Like there's still um, that fleet of people who really over-identify with like mm. either Heath Ledger or with like Suicide Squad versions oh, of Joker. Yeah. Where it's like I I'm totally extreme is the people. real me yeah. They're all still out there saying <laughs> like oh, I, um,
1: love this. I love these like 2009 people who just never stopped doing whatever they were doing in 2009. No, yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> totally forgotten about. that The Joker is the best motion picture and f- film in years. <laughs> it is a film that is too honest for a lot of people to handle, which is why crybabies feel offended or bothered.
1: <laughs> Actually,
4: yeah, there were a few like right-wing guy gar- like i'm assuming white men who were like really sympathizing with the joke and like this is what we get driven to sort of thing it was, did yeah it's, did rod trader
1: have right. a take yet i don't know i assume <laughs> I he did i haven't heard about it
3: on chop <laughs> but i think but. a lot of those people are just like very anti poll really yeah um
0: and i think like but the thing is you do sympathize with him a lot in the film but we're able to you know we're I think as human beings, we, our emotions are fundamentally ambivalent about everything. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like, it doesn't mean that you endorse mass murder. Um, and especially as as we kind of touched on at the start, especially not the kind of, what he's driven to is not what leftists would consider any kind of solution really, not in
3: its its fundamental form. Um, but, you know, the Joker mainly punches up. Maybe a <laughs> bit of lateral-ish workplace violence, but on the whole.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, like... Like, I definitely thought that what Joaquin Phoenix is, like, trying to do with the character is that he's very clearly saying, like, you should feel bad for this guy. He is also, like, comic in a sense. There's that scene where he, like, um, you know, I'm definitely spoiling it, but, like, he kills a guy in front of the um, the... Midget film. Uh,
0: the short, short. Pe- little bit Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Sorry. Like <laughs> no, I, no, I, you're fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, one of the, the absolute funniest films. Mm-hmm. It's fairly funniest. But it's of like the and it's a a scene the scene where door you know. Off. So
1: he's yeah, this little person guy is locked locked in a room with a murderer, right? And he's just panicking. He can't get out of the door because the door change shut. And it's a scene where it's like you definitely. It's hilarious. It's really funny, and it's on the one hand you're laughing you also completely understand that it's not funny at all to that guy Mm. because he's not sitting like and then and it does do kind of a lot of comedy about that guy where it's kind of other people doing jokes at his expense for being like a little person and it's being like well and it does sort of get you laughing at him while at the same time being like well that's not funny to that guy that's just a regular guy like Mm. and it's like that kind of scene where it's this On the one hand, and I think it does the same with the Joker being, like, on the one hand. It is funny that he's, like, you know, depressed and lives alone and, like, bathes his Mm. mum and all this stuff. But it's, like, obviously that's also really sad. Mm. Obviously, like, yeah. it is Like, it's not even that, like, you shouldn't laugh at it. but Like, you can laugh at terrible things happening, but you Mm. should also understand that they are terrible things. I
3: guess it's, like, if you give the filmmaker a lot of credit, it's the microcosm of the film as a whole where, like, that scene is that, like, peak stress laughter. When yeah. you're so wound up. Like, you think he's about to get killed. It's that, like, laughter as release. But I, and I guess all laughter is that, and, like, getting kind of
0: deep Freudian here, but I think the, the theory is that laughter is, like, this point of, like, incredible tension. Yeah. like,
3: oh, <laughs> ah, there's the timer. <laughs> um, it's, like, summoned for a kind of psychological task, I think is what Freud yeah, said. so if this film imagines, like, all of society at breaking point where we can, like, laugh at shit comedy or we can go kill people or we can riot, whatever, it's all the same. We're all at this breaking point. Very good point. I don't know whether the director is actually that you're giving a lot of credit.
1: It's <laughs> one of the yeah. Just the other cute thing that I noticed that I want to mention. Mm. They're watching uh, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times at one point, point. Mm. and in Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, there's a scene where the little tramp, the clown figure, um, accidentally lays, like walks in front of a communist march and accidentally leads like a communist march through the streets, wow. and then yeah. like is waving a flag and looks up like, and it's like a red flag, and then he looks around and the police just like charge in and like break him up <laughs> and beat him up. That's basically, like, that's what happens in the films. The Joker accidentally is leaving. Is yeah. like, yeah, which I, I thought that was cute.
0: But I think it ad- adapted for our kind of p- current political yeah, moment yeah, yeah. The, in that yeah. the crowd has no objective and certainly not really any coherent politics yeah, yeah.
3: other than Eat the Rich, which is a yeah. politics I you know, totally endorse, obviously. Um, I think we can end with the best uh, Joker yeah. take from Lil Nas X, please. Uh, why are they so mean to clown man? <laughs> Sad face. <laughs> Perfect,
0: leave it there. <laughs> All right. I think we're, we're kind of leading from this discussion of intense um, alienation into a discussion about a shorter working week. So, going Alienation
4: from and dead labour. It's a good segue.
0: Yeah, definitely. You can see
4: the segues going here. Yes. Um,
0: yeah, so go ahead.
4: Um, so the way I sort of started to do this was like, because I don't know much about the history of a shorter working week, so I sort of started to like try to research it. But my brain... Is a very distractible brain, and I got like started it, and then got very bored just <laughs> looking at the history of it. So I stopped no. doing that because um, well, I was like you looking can't up put stuff. Too much
3: work into a shorter oh, working exactly. week. Exactly. I, I was like, oh, this is and way this too This is not prefigurative. <laughs> um,
4: it's yeah. This will come up. I think I have a reading series toward the end that close to the end that I'll do. But John Maynard Keynes, who was a big architect of the Bretton Woods system post World War Two, he had this. Um, short sort of essay um, called uh, I think Notes to Our Grandchildren he, and in that he theorized or predicted wrongly that um, by about this time we'd be having a 15-hour work week and that was sort of based on the idea of technological um, progress being able to make productivity gains so much so that people could work less. Mm. Um, but I think
0: it's a pretty um, enduring – it was a pretty enduring idea throughout the 20th century. I remember um, a couple of years ago meeting um, – Like a a guy, um, probably in his 50s or 60s, who said when I was at school, um, they told us all like, you should really learn to play a musical instrument because you're going to need something to fill your time when
3: there's really no more work to do because of technological change. (laughs) Very optimistic. optimistic. This is this exact same optimism that they see with, you know, the robots are going to replace us, but it's okay. We're all just going to chillax. Yeah. Be served by the robots.
4: (laughs) I wish. And I think this topic is like becoming more and more pertinent to me because next week I'm starting full-time work and just the <laughs> dread and anxiety this week have actually really settled in mm. into it for me. And like, Amy, I know you already work, you know, full-time in a completely different city
2: yeah i i, I think anyone who listens to the show knows i bang on about this a lot <laughs> um, <I laughs> but always the last time <laughs> we talked about it was the time
0: when we had the issue with audio quality so maybe people didn't hear you properly so feel yeah free to repeat. <laughs> um
2: i guess for a lot of people there's a combination of um, full-time work and a long commute um i was reading a, a piece about um commuting in the uk this week and there's some amazing research that shows like um for every extra 20 minutes you're commuting it's equal to like a deduction of pay like your well-being um goes down significantly the longer you're commuting on top of um working full-time um And yeah, I mean, all the things we know, like we've got this massive mental health crisis and we've got an overwork crisis, got an underwork crisis, um, and all these things, uh, like a lot of things culminating in like the promise of a four day work week um, as a sort of pathway through this. Um, And I think Callum, you were gonna talk a little bit about this, like the risk of, this becoming um, a tool to prop up a failing capitalism is quite real and ways that we can think about this being like um, a revolutionary tool that, you know, frees us up to have time to do the other important work that we need to do, not to just um, stabilise capitalism, um, which I think is is really important because it's not just about making sure, um, you know, some people work less and those um who don't have enough work can then get access to that time, um, but to make sure that this frees us up to do the important stuff that we need to do.
4: Yeah, no, I think this, I think the the um, four day or just shorter working week is a absolutely vital tool um, moving towards like a coupled with a UBI. Um, and you know that whole idea of beach socialism, which I won't go into again, you can listen to that um, past episode. But I think it could be in danger of just like the UBI being hijacked by the you know tech bros or hedge fund um, class for lack of a better description, because there's a lot of, um, I've seen oh, when I was researching this, there's a lot of takes on it and from places such as hedge funds or innovators and entrepreneurs who implemented it in their workplace um, for productivity reasons. Mm-hmm. And it was got me thinking like, oh, this is – so, what ways are they going to talk about it? And so, basically, I sort of – they were distilled into a couple. One of them was um, that it's – they're using it because they think, oh, so much time is wasted just scrolling and – Talking to your colleagues or whatever. So if you compress it, people will be stressed to work more and get it all done. Um, plus, it's also like a wage cut; they don't have to pay as much wages, which is why it's so important to have a four-day work week with no loss of pay, which is what J- um, John McDonald was talking about um, a few weeks ago. Because um, yeah, it's. I read this one article where it was, I think it was an Australian company, and she, you know, she, she again was. I can't remember what her company did, but it was definitely in a, in innovation I can't even say the (laughs) fucking word. Um, I hate it so much. Uh, But yeah, she was saying, oh, you know, it was hard for them because they had to take a pay cut and the stress, but you know, that's just what you have to, that's the trade off for having, you know, less time. And, And it was just such bullshit because at the end of the day, what we want is the ability to go to shorter working week. And with, Like a rise in worker control of our workplaces, which I will hope, which would hopefully negate that whole tech bro slash entrepreneur way of doing it. Of you just get a wage cut, but you have to work harder to make up for the the um gap. Because
0: I feel like what that critique kind of ignores, especially in white collar office jobs, um, what we tend to refer to as bullshit jobs, is the fact that um. We're already getting paid to sit around doing nothing for like a huge period of time. like you're not paying us like you're you have the money there to pay us for what is probably four, if not three days' worth of work that but because you know it's actually about hierarchy and control, we're forced to sit there for five days spending hours just like scrolling through
3: doing podcast show plans and other <laughs> other things. Um, what will this mean for the podcast economy? Yeah. well, well if we have a four-day work week and we spend the fifth day, you know, like learning our be instruments boom, the podcast. When yeah. boom. We really yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we would certainly be more regular.
2: Everyone um, you will you'll, you'll be a what a farmer in the morning and you'll podcast after dinner <laughs> uh, and never have to actually be a podcaster. Yeah. Just be even
0: more online. <laughs> But um, yeah, I think so so the idea like the idea that you get paid for the time that you're actually doing work, like as Marxists, I think we already know is false for a lot of complicated uh, crystal reasons. Um, But it's also false just because anyone who's had the experience of one of those jobs knows that you you don't get paid for the time you work. You get paid for the time you're there pretending to work. So, yeah, I find it false, that idea that you trade off
3: Well, I think at the moment we have this splitting off where we have a huge amount of bullshit jobs, but then we have all these gig economy workers who are only paid when they're literally on the clock and often still not paid when they're working because there's all the before and after stuff that... I think that's an interesting point, this idea about bullshit jobs. The few um,
2: the firms in Australia and New Zealand that have implemented a four-day work week found um, a boost in productivity um, because people were less stressed and you know they weren't super exhausted getting into work. Um, and that doesn't feel like a super compelling argument either, like that, okay, we'll go down to four days just so we can um, – be making our firms even more productive um, when really like we should all be getting a wage increase anyway, because we know there's this massive gap between wages and productivity. If the productivity goes even up even further with four days, we could get a pay increase at the same time.
1: I like that. So, it's not just like, it's not just like less days for the same money. It's like, no, less days for more money. Less days
2: yeah. for more money. <laughs> yeah. This is our demand. Yeah. That's what's yeah. That's what's <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: Which is what?
4: I think, is so fantastic that it's actually being talked about like that in the U.K. I think we should maybe, if it's possible, through the magic of audio editing to splice in John McDonald's little like oh, yeah. speech he did at the yeah. conference.
5: People in our country work some of the longest hours in Europe, and since the 1980s, the link between increasing productivity and expanded free time has been broken. It's time to put that right. So I can tell you today that the next Labour government will reduce the average full-time working week to 32 hours within the next decade. It will be be a shorter working week with no loss of pay. As a first step, and this has been a real bugbear of some of us, As a first step, we'll end the opt-out from the European Working Time Directive. We'll roll out sectoral collective bargaining. We'll include negotiations over working hours within that. We'll require working hours to be included in legally binding sectoral agreements between employers and trade unions. This will allow the unions and employers to decide how best to reduce hours for their particular sector and we will set up a working time commission with the power to recommend to government on increasing statutory leave entitlements as quickly as possible without increasing unemployment. But you know, while, while millions are exhausted from overwork, there are too many others who can't get the working hours they need. So let's make it clear, absolutely clear, we'll also ban zero hour contracts to make sure every employee... We will make sure. We will make sure every employee has a guaranteed number of hours a week.
4: It's it's like a core of their. It was their manifesto or something like coming out of that Labour conference. Mm, it's like mm. we will implement this in the next decade.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which
4: is incredible. Um, and then I was thinking, okay, well, what what's happening in the US regarding the shorter working week? And Bernie actually, he's not as good as Corbyn on it, but he did hint at it because he was asked at a um. I think it was a union forum, you know, he would ask whether he would be open to cutting the hours of the work in the week from 40 to 32 and he said it is definitely an idea we need to look at um, amongst other ones. So, he's not as like committed to it as Corbyn's and government or opposition is um, but it's definitely a thing like being talked about in the US and then I spent, I swear to God, like an hour Googling the Australian context to see if anyone in the <laughs> Labor Party or even just the fucking unions were just talking about it like as a thing. Um, but no, I couldn't find anything except Richard um, Di Natale's speech at the press club um, in terms of like a political conversation about mm. it in Australia. Which
1: is frustrating because it seems like a winning electoral platform like if nothing yeah. else. is just like, hey, do you guys want to do less work for more money? Oh, you do.
3: Imagine though either of the major parties going to an election with any kind of winning electoral (laughs) platform. Um,
2: One of the really exciting things about the UK labour platform is that it's predicated on this idea of using this as a tool for building worker power over capital. So they're also talking about um, like using the public service as um, an employer of last resort. um, And then if everyone's getting a four-day work week, then there isn't this like slack of unpaid workers that are used to like discipline everyone else. Mm. Um, And for me, that's what's really exciting about this. Like how can this be use, uh, used as a tool to consolidate power um grassroots power on the ground that we can then use to be making um further demands as well because a four-day work week shouldn't be like this is not the best we can do um like really we should be demanding a three-day work week two day work week one day work week, post work a post work no. <laughs> <a post-work laughs> world just, um
1: everyone just posts a post a post, post. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. don't Work to post, post to work.
2: Yeah, but (laughs) four-day posting week. (laughs) (laughs) This is a really compelling idea that is um, like it's so readily – Able to be understood by like everyone I speak to. I've talked about this on the pod before. Like when I talk to my colleagues, I'm like, "What do you really want to do with your days?" And they're like, "I want to read kids' books. I want to you know sit down and read books with kids, and I want to work yeah, in I a shop." Sit, sit up and by read myself reading yeah, kids yeah. books. <laughs> That's fine too. <laughs> um, I actually do have a colleague who um she takes her dog into community centers and she uses the dog as a teaching tool and she puts all the books down and um just as an aside and she goes what are we going to read today the little dog goes and nudges a book and then that's the (laughs) book that they read I think I want that job I want that job in
3: my in in my post-work world and yeah, I think then, you know, thinking about the Tech to stuff, I'm, I just actually looked up that Keynes piece and it's a really short, well-written thing. But the first paragraph, we are suffering just now from a bad attack of economic pessimism. It is common to hear people say that the epoch of enormous economic growth which characterized the 19th century is over. The rapid improvement in standard of life is now going to slow down. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. This feels like a very now thing. And then he goes on to prescribe this as a remedy. And I think, you know, when you think about people like, you know, Yang in the US presidential race, you have either UBI or a four-day work week. is these real prescriptions for like, all right, let's come on G up, guys. It's not over.
0: Yeah. There's, still there's, there's a way to make this
3: work. Let's, yeah. you know, keep on, on capitalizing.
1: I saw an amazing video, which I haven't been able to find again, of like a trucker with like in the States with like a really strong like Southern accent. It was just all in on Andrew Yang, and it was just like all of the establishment Democrats—they don't know nothing. But Andrew Yang, and he was—and he was—he had really good politics. He was like the only, like the best take on the American election so far.
3: Why doesn't that guy support Bernie?
1: I don't know. He's probably just never heard of him.
3: <laughs> there are a surprising number of Bernie Yang. Oh, mm. Supporters across a Bernie like, like President VP th- yeah.
1: kind of vibe. That was kind of what I think thinking was like that probably no one's had a conversation with that guy about Bernie Yang. Yeah.
3: Or I think if you take those policies at face value and don't think about like the underlying power, you need to get those things happening without it just. One of
2: my favourite anecdotes about Andrew Yang is he did a whole lot of uh, market testing to find a, a phrase for um, the universal basic income that would be palatable um, for Americans. Then they came up with the freedom dividend, <laughs> which is just like no. the most American thing. I would um, not accept it if it was called the freedom <laughs> dividend. Mm. Um, one of the other really exciting things about a four-day work week is, the, is the, um, like the environmental benefits and mm. like shorter commutes and like less um, stress shopping and like getting home at the end of the day and having to like order Uber Eats because you're super tired um, and just – you know freeing up time to do things that you actually want to do rather than um rushing around mm. um and the the green institute have done some um really interesting work on how a four-day work week would have um these flow-on benefits um for the environment as well
0: mm. and i think there's an, there's an interesting opportunity there to include it as part of the transition away from, mm. from high, you know High carbon emitting jobs, possibly as part of a Green New Deal, but we've talked about the Green New Deal so much on the podcast. So I don't want to get too far into that.
2: <laughs> I think it's super interconnected, though, right? Because yeah. this is about like transforming the whole economy, exactly. I and this is an opportunity. For, there's an
0: open door it. for like yeah. or, actually a transformative um, form of uh, yeah, like reimagining reimagining work completely. But I do think it is interesting, very telling that uh, four day work week so often gets framed as like a win-win situation like we were talking about before Mm. just the, oh, and it also leads to increased productivity. Um, So I think any leftist project for shorter work week has to be like far away from that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, we're not doing too good at, you know, like worker flexibility, not just meeting exploitation or keeping people's work in work hours or maintaining benefits or anything. So I'm not exactly sure what the path to like a solid um worker controlled four day work week would look yeah, like. Yeah. The level of But I think that uh, no a
0: uh, pay rise for less work is a good start. Yeah. And also that point yeah. you made, Amy, about um the function of the unemployed um uh, workforce to like discipline the mm. you know, the the uh, the workforce I guess is, mm. is a super important one and um unemployed workers probably don't get talked about enough in these kind of discussions.
4: Because yeah, the shorter working week would help with also tying in Maybe not necessarily a hard jobs guarantee, but it would definitely be huge progress towards that because so many people, every now and again, you know, until I purge them from my friends list, there'll be like boomers who post, like comment on some of my stuff if it's about shorter day work week, and it'll be like, who, who's gonna work, you know the at pe- days that people don't work, you know, what are the first responders going to do you or something like no that? I'm
1: like, rotating well, it's obviously like <laughs> the,
4: the obvious answer is just employ more people
1: to cover that. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not like there's, there's quite a few unemployed people out there, I'm told. Yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, like And it seems like the case for it is seat. strong. And like, if you tell people it's possible, they'll go for it. But there's not the political will to kind of push for it. And it's because the point of a five-day work week is not, actually to like maximize productivity it's to make sure you're not allowed to do anything else
0: that's right yeah and i think um the other thing i wanted to say before and i mentioned the um how many many of us in in bullshit office jobs spend our time just sitting around not working um in david not david harvey um david graber's book david harvey would be so offended if i (laughs) confused him with david graber um david graber's book bullshit jobs he talks about this the fact that like okay so you've got a generation of young people who are sitting in the, employed in these jobs, they've got huge amounts of spare time and unlimited access to the internet, basically which is the repository of like all human knowledge, history and culture, you'd probably expect some kind of like, you know, Renaissance period of like flowering of arts and culture and imagination. Actually, nothing like that happened because there is something qualitatively different about being at work. Like even when you're sitting in the office, not speaking at all from experience, if you're sitting in an office (laughs) where no one can see a screen and you can work on your own project as much as you want, like you do that a little bit, but it's, it is not this, like, there is still a, a kind of phantom control over your time and yourself
3: while you're at work. Uh,
1: yeah, we're, we're on ghosts again, I guess. It, well, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Man, this is, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. This mm. is
3: segueing so beautifully. <laughs> it is, I think, you know, like, liberalism is a trap, but it is sad to me um, seeing how much modern kind of liberal economists have given up on the dreams of Keynes, like these dreams Mm. of like improving human circumstance or things getting better. Yeah. Where kind of like the current day manager of the economy, we're just kind of like locked into this death spiral of grinding. productivity?
0: That's the only dream. Yeah, whether it's from,
3: you know, economists or from the Labour Party or from whoever, there's no kind of possible vision for improvement. We're just sort of managing decline. Mm.
2: Yeah. And I think linking back to this uh, theory of uh, beach socialism, if our comrade Max was here, um, he often talks about like we have one life and we spend five days a week at work, and that's a travesty. You like, only got one it, shot. Yeah, exactly. You have yeah, well, you have, yeah, you have chance to bitch. Like, to think that you spend more time like looking at a computer screen and like avoiding people in the tea room rather than actually <laughs> spending time with your family and friends is actually appalling. Like, and uh, many of you here would know, like, when it gets to Friday afternoon, I'm just like, this is a scam. Like, how has this happened? How have we created this system that is obviously not working for us? Um, and how can we carve back to Well, some time I mean, to, it's pretty obvious. Like, the, one the thing
3: at the end of Keynes's thing is that, you know, um, the pace at which we can reach our destination of economic bliss will be governed by four things blah 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 and blah and the fourth one is the rate of accumulation is fixed by the margin between our production and our consumption of which the last will easily look after itself given the first three (laughs) it's like hmm that one hasn't happened like the the democratic control over that is completely broken so
4: well to finish on a positive note uh shall i read out this hot take on the shorter working week
0: please
3: do so
4: (laughs) The article's called "The Misunderstood 15-Hour Work Week" of John Maynard Keynes, and then the subline or byline or whatever it's called is "The Promised 15-Hour Work Week Came, but No One Noticed." <laughs> what? It. Oh my God! This is yeah. great news. So I'm only going to
0: go into work 15 hours. You heard it here first. <laughs> oh, we're all doing it, Joe. <laughs> Sorry, I
3: didn't tell you.
4: So this guy's uh, Twitter bio, I think, will give you an idea of the direction this is going. So it's by um, a guy called Philip. Putinsev, definitely not saying that right. Um, so this is his Twitter bio: cryptocurrency, anarcho-capitalism, <laughs> and life extension advocate. Well, bright future wealth, star. freedom, and longevity. what, <laughs> Wait,
0: what was that second combo. part? So, read that again.
3: Cryptocurrency,
4: anarcho-capitalism, uh-huh. and life extension advocate. Wait,
3: what's a life extension? Uh, ad- I can tell you all about that if you want. I was so pleased to see this um, fuckwit scammer um, name-checked. I should let you read and then I can explain the Aubrey de Grey experience. go <laughs> yeah. um,
4: So, I'll get... I was going to... You can go through his tweets, but, like, they, go, they range from stuff like, you know, his tweets are, in the battle the goal is not to win, but to inflict as much damage as possible. <laughs> he who acts owns the world. So Unlike most people think the truth still does mean something all the way down to, like, really 4 channy stuff. So, like, he's,
0: like, the kind of guy who has, like, Machiavelli lying around in his house. Probably.
4: And then, yeah, and just, like, the general, so like, too. quite transphobic and Islamophobic okay. stuff, like, underneath all that. But the article itself is a pretty hot take on... He
0: owns multiple swords. I'm just going to go and say it now.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, this is... I'm going to skip through a lot of it because a lot of it's pretty fucking boring. So, uh, first paragraph starting off. Um, In 1930, British, British economist John Maynard Keynes predicted that technolo- technological change and productivity improvements would eventually lead to a 15 hour work week. But most of, of the people still work 40 hours or more per week. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Okay. The 15 hour work week has been around for some time already. John Maynard Keynes was 100% right, and what he predicted happens. Today, it's possible to work only 15 hours a week and make a good living. For example, if you make $100 per hour, 15 hours a week will roughly make you $6,000 per month, which is quite a nice salary for Western world standards. There's actually a great number of people that follow this path, and I'm one of them. Of oh. course we are still a minority, but that's the problem of the rest.
0: <laughs> there uh. are dozens of us, dozens. <laughs> so <laughs> like hundred dollars
4: an hour. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> like just you just have to earn that and um it goes through a few paragraphs of like talking about um um it would be crazy enough to exchange all that lot of stress, no free time, little sleep and ten hour workday, just to avoid a bunch of status related commodities. So he talks about consumption, um, and you know, not, you know, working to buy status things, which is all sort of true to some extent. But then he gets down a bit further and, you know, keeps going in this sort of vein. So a few paragraphs down heading, people are slaves. That's the definition of people. People are slaves by their nature. They are slaves of their hopes, Mm. dreams and needs of social criticism and of traditions of acceptance, recognition and valuation. Most of the thing... Oh, fuck, you can't even... No one spell check this. This guy
0: is like... One of those really annoying guys, especially at parties around like
3: the early or 20s age. The minority age of people just... are able to escape the chains of the slavery of <laughs> the mind.
1: Like me the goddamn joker over here <laughs> <laughs> not part of society's chains.
0: But you know like the guy who would always get like really drunk and then like lock you into this conversation about how like we're all slaves we don't know it. Oh,
3: going through a maths degree I met plenty of those people <laughs> like I'm a double maths philosophy major I'm the biggest genius to ever walk the earth
1: <laughs> i, l- I l- love Libertarian hot takes. They're really good to me.
0: <laughs> this guy, actually, you know what, this is an amazing circle back because I'm yeah, quite sure that he went very Heath Ledger Joker in about 2009 or whenever that film came out.
4: So, uh, and then, yeah, it goes on to talk about, you know, work smart, not hard is um, another one of his paragraphs which doesn't actually say anything. Uh, Um, But then he says, how to achieve a 15-hour work week? The easiest way to achieve the work week is to work for yourself. Convincing your boss for you to work less may not turn out to be successful. If you have your own business, just hire more people to help you and outsource as much as possible. If you're a consultant or freelancer, just raise your fee and see a decrease of clients. Most oh. likely in the end your monthly earnings will not change.
5: Does he
0: understand how <laughs> this works? <laughs> like, all right, I'm I was charging twenty twenty five dollars now, and now I'll charge a hundred, but I'm sure it'll come out in the wash. <laughs> do like and cap the secret.
3: <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't waste time on impo- on unimportant stuff. Travelling around the world and attending conferences may sound like a cool thing to do, but compared to the time spent on it, the effects are minimal. I'm um, I think this guy like is into that self-help sort of bullshit as well. There's a guy like- called
3: um Tim Ferriss who wrote a book called The 4-Hour Workweek, who I think is like the obviously inspires a lot of these fuckwits and he's like, "Oh, I was working and I just stopped working, now I'm rich." Um, and now he has a series of podcasts where he does all this like body hacking and life hacking. <laughs> um, but his original thing, I looked a little bit at his method for only working four hours. and it was um basically drop shipping he made this scam company for selling like dodgy fake bodybuilding nutrients and he got them off like basically the equivalent of alibaba and resold them and he also got um like overseas like task grabber people so he was paying you know people in india online like cents mm. to actually maintain the website so the key to being rich and not working was just like Be a huge scam sell up. shit like take advantage of cheap labor um, you know, fuck off and then start making money by selling your scam like books to promote this. Like it's full pyramid scheme, late yeah, stage it, capitalism. It,
2: it reminds me of like these articles that pop up now and then that, that are like early 20s couple affords house by not eating brunch. And then you <laughs> scroll down the article and they're like both parents gave them a hundred thousand dollar loan <laughs> and they lived at home till, you know, forever. And you're like, oh, it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just because you saved a bit of money.
3: Yeah. Tim Ferriss is a nightmare. I feel you ever want to beat yourself up? He's like, I would teach you how to pack, you know, for a month long holiday in like just a Ziploc bag. And the key it's is so like niche. buy all your clothes when you get there. Or something <laughs> like that. Or, like, stay Central with a billionaire. Experiment. Yeah. Um, Callum, you had a brief
0: job delivering food to bodybuilders, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah.
4: That <laughs> was could, interesting. You just
0: start a pyramid scheme and, and do a lot of books being like how to get really rich. Were you getting a hundred bucks an hour?
4: No, I was getting like $13 an hour. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's,
2: that's, that's your immortal. problem. Yeah.
4: It was just me. So, if you've never met me before, I'm like a stick. And I'm working in this kitchen, and everyone else is this massive bodybuilder. Just like I'm squeezing in between all these like massive biceps and, you know, trying to avoid being stomped on my massive thighs. <laughs> well, this sounds yeah. terrible. Yeah, it was, it was but terrific, they were uh,
0: So, they were bodybuilders making food for other bodybuilders. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Bodybuilder multi level marketing.
4: They stuff. were charging like $10 for a cooked breast of chicken seriously i, I was just like putting a, a, a cooked breast of chicken in a plastic container and that was a meal because they couldn't be bothered cooking that themselves mm-hmm.
3: having once lived with an amateur bodybuilder it, they didn't know how to cook there wasn't necessarily a couldn't be bothered issue so you were just delivering like pure protein around the town oh
4: yeah it was just like you'd um you'd, you'd cook it up uh in the kitchen pack it up in these Eskies and then they'd be driven around And dropped off at people's houses You have
0: to like feed it to them with a little fork
4: (laughs) (laughs) No But it was like um, There was like one time where I think They were just dropped off at someone's house on their veranda And like they didn't pick it up for a while (laughs) They got food poisoning
3: (laughs) (laughs) What an idiot you are though Callum You should have been doing the 15 hour work week methodology Where you like steal the business idea (laughs) Get it run by it Some like undocumented immigrants who don't speak English (laughs) So don't understand the minimum wage
1: well, you should Take people's have, credit card details. You should simply have made $100 an hour at this job. Yeah, really. I, I mean, I really can't so stress that enough. So just asked him for a, <laughs> way, uh, for a wage rise. But, but
3: yeah, um, apart from the, the business scammery, so this guy, his um, in paragraph two, his paragon of scientific virtue is Aubrey de Grey, or as I just learned from Wikipedia, um, Aubrey David Nicholas Jasper de Grey, who I encourage you all to Google because he looks exactly what you think an (laughs) anti-aging scammer might look like. He's an incredibly thin, pale man with this kind of like tolkien beard. Definitely strong cult leader vibes. Um, And he's been going around for years um, as an anti-aging researcher. Um, And he successfully scammed a lot of money out of like... Uh, silicon valley type of people he's had a lot of money from peter til um oh, well, the- <laughs> yeah and <laughs> he's basically the guy there he,
4: is who like injects the blood of the young into him, yeah, yeah fully
3: yeah. yeah so he's got like he's been super criticized by biologists and everyone um but continues with his research that's sort of positing a future where if you do all the right things you'll never die mm. and part of it is advocating this really you know there'll be a bit of research that says for mice if they reduce their calories by 50%, they live, you know, 1% longer. And so you take that and say, all right, so humans have to eat only half of what we should eat and then we'll live to 200 or something. So it's like wildly over. (laughs) It's a huge (laughs) jump. (laughs) That'd be
4: awesome if all these people like then just starve to death and we wouldn't have (laughs) to worry about the tech. So, yeah, even
3: if it worked, you're in this like miserable lifestyle eating like a kilo of selenium every day and no nutrients and like, you know, optimizing your your light intake or whatever. Um, But then he's also got lots of other wonderful bullshit like the idea of a pro-aging trance. Um, So we're all just kind of psyching each other into ageing because we're convinced that ageing is unavoidable and desirable. So we kind of bring it on.
0: Well, as I've said many times, I'm staying 28 forever. So I'm
3: I'm just trying to get everyone out of this trance. You're safe. Um, and then, yeah, he's into all this, you know, bullshit like cryogenics and stuff. But.
2: Look, it sounds, it, most of it sounds really bullshit. But if, if, if any of it is true, I want him to take it to Bernie Sanders yeah. <laughs> and because we need Bernie to live uh, for another 40 years at least. I will give Bernie my heart.
4: <laughs> well, this guy finishes his article um, by looking, you know, far into the future. And he says, in the far future, we will have a one-hour work week. As the technology advance and robots will take over human... I'm reading this verbatim, by the way. Robots will take over human jobs. We will no longer have to work at all. So all we, we will have to do is own a company that is run by robots and the AI will take care of all the rest. Robots
1: <laughs> will well, just have companies.
3: Like, oh, my God. In this situation, so only periodic checking, some decision-making and performing legal action. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you just going to be suing all the other robot companies constantly? This is There's the future. Batman's Enterprise (laughs) There's a company That doesn't do anything But even this Huge opportunity Scares more people Than it gives hope to People really are Slaves of the habit so this is, like, the the work version of the pro-aging trance, where we're all just tranced into thinking we need to go to work.
1: There's some amazing libertarian takes on this idea of, like, I've predicted the future and it, we'll all have robots that do all the work and we'll have supercomputers that do all the thinking, but for some reason we'll still have a capitalist economy where, mm. uh, like, we'll all still be, you know, we'll still have to work and we'll still have all this, like, Transactions and like production and consumption. Yeah, going on we'll this all this buy for some our shit from our
3: you know chicken breast yeah. company. It's like who
1: consumes? Who consumes? Like, do the robots also buy this stuff? <laughs> I don't. I don't understand it.
3: I think it's an interesting one too. We were um, reading some horrendous um, takes post the Extinction Rebellion shutdown of some commuter trains in London, oh, yeah. where there were some Extinction Rebellion um, members on there being like, "Well." What if they just took time to smell the roses? Do they really need to be at work? You more income means more plastic junk. If they just change their mindset. <laughs> so this guy's got the same like, thing. People are slaves to their trance <laughs> that tells them that they, they need income to buy to, food. Yeah, to feed their
1: children. Yeah. This is a huge amount of effort that goes in going into just pretending that money doesn't exist once you get to that stage of like oh, I'll simply make $100 an hour, what's the problem? And, like, oh, well, I'll simply get hundred grand from my parents. It's, like, this is just real systematic, just, like, are you stupid that you, like, don't have this, that you can't figure this out?
4: Well, that's it, isn't it? Because
1: all these people
4: have the same sort of... And, you know, like, Peterson and... Mm. Um, all that mm. crowd that, and this guy, they all fall under that banner of individual responsibility. Mm. So, like, the only reason people aren't successful is it's their own fault. Mm. There is no structural or mm. societal reasons mm. for it. It is purely an individual responsibility thing. So, if you are where you are, it's your own fault or your own um, uh, ability to pull yourself Up by your bootstraps, that got you there.
3: But I also, in the cases of these people like Philip, whatever the fuck, who's publishing on Hacker Noon, they also, (laughs) I convinced they're geniuses. Like, and this is the, um, you know, do do stem code and you'll never have a problem you know they have once done okay at a maths and now they're convinced that they understand
1: all issues and everyone else it's amazing when you try and look at like what these people have i could do a really deep dive into this which we should not do now at the end of the podcast but it's amazing when you look at what these people have actually accomplished compared to like what they think they've accomplished um oh my god uh, the
3: articles on this guy's page are amazing why governments still don't use bitcoins why i hate phone calls (laughs) what is micromanaging (laughs) why i hate phone calls is very specific (laughs) oh my god i'm also reading his article about how school prepares you to be a sheeple (laughs) but he's saying he spent his childhood in finland which actually has a fantastic education system but probably because they have spent a huge amount of money on education and have a really functional social democracy so presumably everything this guy is opposing
0: but that's what made him so smart. How can we turn against <laughs> yeah, it now? Just like
3: stealing the education from Finland and going back to the US to only employ robots.
4: <laughs> he should um go to Mike Baird and see if he can get a job there because like, <laughs> Mike, Mike Baird's into all that crypto stuff now. Is he? Yeah, did you not... You know Mike Baird, the former New South Wales Premier? He Because um, he got like kicked out or resigned or something and then he went to work for NAB. And then there's some weird thing out recently where he was like on the project spruiking this weird like you know millions of australians are making um use of this loophole crypto app and he's it's, he's like spruking this crypto app it's oh super God. weird that
0: is so weird <laughs> whenever people appear on tv or like uh, formally reasonable people start spruking spooking cryptocurrency i'm always just like What's happening? It's like watching some like, trying to, like, get to the real person, like, behind the weird mask that's to, suddenly put on. To be
4: fair, I don't think Mike Beg was ever a reasonable person. No, no, he, that's LNP true. LNP is pretty fucking cooked. Yeah.
3: <laughs> you know, on one level, I'm glad that people are out there, like, scamming scammers, but... Well,
1: well, like, to some extent, I think this like, on some level of this life extension stuff, and a lot of this, like, libertarian adjacent stuff... At the very core, it comes from a good impulse to be like, we should have more time. Like, mm. our lives should be better. The world, mm. like, you know, should be better. We should be able to do all this stuff. And it's that kind of utopian impulse. But there's just a million different ways it gets completely subverted by. Incred- just like, yeah. the, you know, first, they're just unwillingness to consider their own, like, material situation where it's just like, well, and then this whole thing of, well, I should have more stuff. But, mm. you know, not if it involves, like, engaging with other people.
0: The only way we can make lives better qualitatively is finding a serum that will let us live
3: Individual, <laughs> yeah, yeah. very rich yeah, individuals live for longer. I think a conspiratorial um, mm. attitude to science where like they have the secrets and they're being hidden from us as opposed to science has found out plenty of things but we as a society don't allocate funding that allows those like discoveries to be translated into meaningful improvements in people's lives. So instead they're hiding that we need to take like, you know – Manganese injected into our toes, and then we'll live to one hundred and forty or whatever.
1: I think it really speaks to a level of like, look, all these guys, of course, communism, you know, killed hundred million people, um, and they all think they're all really ideologically opposed to it, and so this level of that's
0: also incredibly triggering for me on the subject of, like, guys who trap you into long conversations yeah, yeah, yeah. at parties. That's <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, That's what they say. <laughs> but
1: there's a real level of, like, well, we obviously know that everything's bad. I mean, this is, like, my mum's take on the joke. It's like, well, yeah, like, we get that everything's bad mm. and rich are fucked and capital's really bad, but we're also, we really can't conceive of, like, a mass, like, a popular resistance to it mm. doing anything, mm. and we can't conceive of an alternative, and we certainly really staunchly opposed to the idea of like a collective movement that like engages with it and like produces anything and we just think, oh, that'll just be communism. That'll kill a hundred million people. Yeah. And so you get sidetracked to these like, you know, cryogenics, life extension, um, all of this well just, you know, upload our brains. Or in, or in the climate
3: sense, like getting, you know, like weather controlling fucking like cloud lasers instead of reducing our use of fossil fuels.
0: Mm yeah and I think there's like a real um sense of actually fittingly enough like mystification around mm. some of these things and particularly around the topic of money like why don't you just earn a hundred dollars an hour it's I think it's not only the idea that if you know if you're failing you're if you're not getting enough if you're not getting a hundred dollars an hour, then you're doing it wrong somehow. But also the, a, a total, like, mystification around where that – as you said, Matt, where that money actually comes from. Like, m- how money how how money and profit is produced, you know, through labor and, like, why how money circulates and that kind of thing. They seem to literally just think, oh, I mean, returning to the trope of, like, the, the kind of white dude who talks at, at you too much at a party. Money's, like, just a piece of paper, dude. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, it's really weird. People just put so much – uh, power into money but it's really just paper like it just circulates kind of independently and we're all choosing to believe in it um and obviously that has a lot of power in in obscuring the the role of of labor
4: yeah well I think um just maybe ra- just tying it all back together like these yeah these you know tech bros and crypto people and life extensionists who all you know would use the four day work week to um boost their productivity but not their robot slaves. Um, I think there's, going back to the whole gothic marxism Marxism of it, it's like they're trying to become they're trying to figure out ways to become the vampire in the castle. They're trying to figure out the ways to find that immortality when um, you know whereas the rest of us are trying to figure out how to find all the pitchforks and get everyone organised to storm up there (laughs) and kill the bastards.
2: And I wonder where they see the people who are at, actually extending people's lives, like you know, nurses and doctors and carers who uh, aren't getting paid hundred bucks an hour, um, or you know,
0: unions sheep. and the the um, yeah. advent of like safer working conditions, or you know, even shorter working weeks to
3: save people's lives and greatly extended life expectancy. Yeah, like well, I think this is like the. Um, what do they call Seasteading? Like the building of like sovereign countries on like offshore oil rigs so you can live there in your little like anti-poor, anti-climate fortress. Like this is the health version of that that they're undertaking. Cool.
0: Um, any last thoughts before we wrap up?
4: <laughs> what's, uh, what's people think is going to be the next Batman movie on? Because it's got Robert Pattinson as Batman.
2: Oh. Uh. Yeah. Oh, um, I am looking forward to the day where we have the origin story of the Riddler, um, who I always confuse with the Joker, but remember Jim Carrey's Riddler?
0: No, when, not at all. Oh,
2: okay. Well, this <laughs> is a piece of history that you need to revisit. I will. I'm fascinated to know where did the Riddler come from?
0: Yeah. Okay. Isn't it also like a um, like a demonic penguin or something in the Batman universe? Um, yeah. Yes. The yes,
1: peng- yes, there yes. is. The penguin. There it's is just the called penguin, the penguin. Yeah.
3: Oh, okay. Well, I want an origin story for him too. <laughs> I'd like to read a poem about the Joker that's been in my head ever since the Joker movie was announced, please. There's always a Joker in the pack. There's always a lonely clown. And there is a jester, just a fool, as foolish as he can be. There's always a Joker, that's the rule. But fate deals the hand, and I see. The Joker is me. Whoa!
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good place to leave. <laughs> Alienation in Rooney Ponds, <laughs> <laughs> Australian Gothic. Yeah. Um, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> um, the piece uh, again is Ramsey Marks and the Ghosts of the Western Canon. You can find it on Overland. We'll link to it in the show description. Um, and yeah, we'll uh, see you guys again shortly. Thanks for listening. Night. Bye. 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 Bye.